Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history. Like dragons, blankets and scraping. Oh, I love the idea of doing something on scraping. Or we could do something on meals, wheels and heels. Peels, seals and seals. Think they're letters but also think, are, 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 marine mammals. However, this is to digress as ever. Because what we should be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of shopping is in fact all about ancient street vendors in Pompeii, peddlers, William Shakespeare's character Autolycus, one of my favourite characters in his canon uh, in the brilliant play The Winter's Tale. It's about trade cards and material culture of retail. It's about extravagance. Oh, Goodness me, you wouldn't believe it, Sam. It's all about early modern gloves. Who knew? Or who knew that the history of hacking is in fact all about code breaking and World War Two? And this was another one of our homeschooling episodes that we did during lockdown for kids who were not at school but at home studying away and trying to learn about the past. That was a fascinating one. They were. Uh, they're very popular indeed, actually, and I'd highly recommend them to all of our usual listeners as well. Just go and check out the homeschooling episodes. They're great fun. Um, you're probably wondering who my fellow presenter is. I don't need to be overly creative with this one, James. I'm just going to say that if history was a chaotic jumble of dismantled jigsaw pieces, this man would be none other than the grandfather of the past. The, the old boy sitting in the corner after Christmas lunch, crumbs on his jumper, whiskey in his glass, hunched over a baize table with a lamp, sorting through those pieces of the past, turning the chaos into a beautiful landscape made from 5,000 hand-cut pieces. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University, the jigsaw man of the past himself, Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Would you believe it? I have, in fact, just purchased a Christmas jigsaw. Would you believe that? That I, I'm squirrelling away till Christmas to, as the term is ending, we can have out on the dining room table and, and spend a, a candlelit evening or two uh, putting it all together. However, that digresses as always. Um, you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice? So 
ably helping Davo co-pilot this episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a chaos-related historian, he'd only be, he wouldn't be, he'd only be the historical equivalent of Jacques Hadamard, early theorist whose work predated chaos theory and who, in 1898, published an influential study of the the chaotic motion of free particle gliding. Goodness me, you certainly did. Uh, He is totally unchaotic. Interpreting the chaos of the past is the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast on the history of chaos. Um, This was my idea. It was. I think. Yes. Yep. Um, Because we were, uh, I was reading through the week, as I always do, and there was a wonderful article on what was going on at Kabul in the airport. And it made me... Do you know what? I I thought about the chaos you normally get at airports, and I'd actually witnessed a a scene of extraordinary chaos in in an airport in China not long ago in Guangzhou, and everything fell apart. There were huge queues of people... Um, shouting and piles of luggage and basically the whole the whole airport system had broken down and I'm sure that many of you out there who've been lucky enough to go in an aeroplane will have probably witnessed some measure of chaos at an airport at some point but luckily I think none of us will have really witnessed the kind of chaos we experienced at Kabul or we, we've been reading about at Kabul with the fall of Afghanistan but it made me wonder about the history of moments in which all planning all authority has broken down and um, there was clearly the potential for a podcast on the history of chaos. Um, Actually, at the same time, James, because we're near the um, 20th anniversary of 9-11 and um, watching again um, footage, I I watched an amazing documentary um, about how Bush reacted to what was going on. And the, the the scale of the chaos that sort of gripped America in the immediate aftermath of the attacks on the Pentagon and, and the Twin Towers, I think, was really, really striking. And um, that's just another example. There seem to be several things in, in the paper Ooh, at the moment that yes, made, made I, me think about the history of chaos. Yes. Well, I was in I was in Washington, D.C. on that very day, uh, 9-11, and was, was, was caught up in in all of that chaos. And to watch it unfold as you were there... I remember going through to the director of the Folger Shakespeare Library uh, to his office and watching it on the TV and just and watching in disbelief. This was at a time when they thought that, uh, well, a plane was going into the Pentagon, which is only a few miles away. The Folger Shakespeare Library is literally 100 metres or so, a couple of blocks from the Capitol building. And one of the planes was also on the way to blow up the Capitol. And then the entire public transport system of the city of Washington, D.C., or the state of Washington, D.C., because it is a, it is a sort of a state, um, just ground to a halt. You couldn't you literally couldn't get home. And I remember walking back to uh, Northwest, um, you know, trying to sort of, you know, pick my way through there. You know, I think I think in the end it managed to catch a bus. Uh, but very little was happening. And then just the utter, you know, just chaos that evening. It felt like being in Apocalypse Now as I went to the top of the apartment block and looked out at the the smoke billowing out of the Pentagon building in the distance and military 
airplanes just patrolling the skyline. Um, so, yeah, absolute chaos. I mean, the the scenes in Afghanistan as the Taliban have swept to power and the sort of disintegration of government, of being able to feed people is really visceral. And this was something I found really profound. That image of Afghan parents so desperate that they handed babies to the soldiers uh, over the security fences at Kabul airport is something that has gone absolutely viral. But also I think it's the chaos with which is with which we as a country are dealing with Afghan refugees and children who are arriving by themselves. They're separated from their homeland. They arrive with nothing. There are no interpreters. They've got no shoes, no spare clothes. They don't even have anything to keep the rain off them in a very rainy country. They're driven from one end of the country to another in taxis. They're housed in drab, dreary, wholly unsuitable accommodation. I read in The Guardian last week about... Uh, the Manchester Guardian, this is, about the volunteers who were greeting them at the at the when they came in um, and would give them teddy bears and colouring books, these small children. And just the, the way in which they'd clutch these to them, the colouring book, when told that they can actually keep it, a child described as clutching this to herself. You know, one can only imagine the terrifying nature of these ordeals you know, and just the chaos in which they're they're finding themselves. And while one can often explain chaos as in this sort of maelstrom of events and systems breaking down, it's actually the way that it touches the lives of, of ordinary people that I think we're having brought home to us today. As a sort of more historical example, I was thinking of the chaos when... Edward VI died. As a Tudor historian, I always return to, you know, to type. But Edward VI dies. Uh, Lady Jane Grey gets put on on the throne. She's an illegitimate uh, monarch. And there is, in effect, a slight sort of chaos during that period. She and her, her, her sort of backers are based in London in the court. So Mary goes off to Framlingham Castle, uh, which is in Suffolk. And she regroups and very slowly... Over that time, over that sort of series of days, you have the forces moving back towards her and the chaotic situation that you've had get, get solved and we have on the throne uh, uh, a legitimate monarch. So there we are. That was my thinking about it. And then we can, of course, think about chaos theory. Um, and chaos theory is, is, is really interesting. I did a little bit of reading about this and it basically is... It's it's a sort of conundrum because it's almost the science of understanding something that is unpredictable so that you can then predict it, which I thought, you know, just almost mind blowing. But I think that's why I'm not a scientist and why I am a historian. I wonder if it would work for trying to understand histories of the unexpected. What we're going to do next. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it would. A chaotic rampage around the past. Very good. Um James, you're talking about what happened after the death of Edward is interesting because it really made me um, spring to mind the, the period known as the Anarchy. So it's a civil war in England. It spilled over to northern France as well. But between 1135 and 1153, uh, it's something I've come across time and again because it's linked with the White Ship disaster. So that's when um, 
a huge number of nobles, including the uh, only legitimate son of Henry I, dies in, in, a, um, in a shipwreck off the coast of northern France. And Henry then attempts to install his daughter, Matilda, as his successor, um, but his nephew Stephen of Blois uh, seizes the throne, and there ends up with this extraordinary um, uh, a period of civil war, which became known as the Anarchy, and there's a great deal of castle building um, which goes on in this period as well, and that's another reason I came across it when I've been doing all of my work on castles. However, um, what I actually uh, moved to first was um, a bit of political chaos, and particularly thinking about what happened back in January with the insurgency in Congress and violence. And um, the, the more you look into it, the more you realise how violence and politics goes hand in hand. And it may seem to us, you know, I've felt this way anyway, sitting on a cosy armchair watching what was going on um, in, in, in England, where, where kind of violence within... A, a physical a body for where, where politics occurs is rare. I don't think there's very much fighting in the Houses of Parliament. But that's a very unique experience. And actually, I had a quick look here. And in the last year alone, fighting has broken out in the parliaments of Taiwan, Armenia, Uganda, Greece, Morocco, Hong Kong, Turkey, as well as others. And I wanted to have a quick look at... Um, other examples of fighting in America, if there were any, and by goodness, there there absolutely are. Um, and there's a, an extraordinary event which particularly happened in May 1856, and it was all to do with a debate over slavery. Um, and I found a wonderful description of it in, in a book called American Progress, or Great Events of the Greatest Century, which was written in 1892. So it's, it's written after the American Civil War. It's talking about an event which happened before the American Civil War. Um, it concerns slavery. So there's definitely some uh, benefit of hindsight going on here and being able to identify the violence and chaotic acts which led to a complete breakdown and to civil war, but it's not surprising that this one was focused on, uh, particularly because it happened um, It happened right in the heart of American politics. So this is the description. The barbarous deed transpired at Washington on the 22nd of May 1856, and it would be difficult to name any other event up to this period which so shook the country to its centre, culminating too in the brief space of but five succeeding years, in that terrible shock of arms which changed the destinies of the Republic and gave new life and the national guarantee to human rights. On the 19th of May, the Honourable Charles Sumner, US Senator from Massachusetts, began a speech in the Senate in favour of admitting Kansas into the Union under a state constitution, which he adopted prohibiting slavery. The question had for a long time produced the most intense political excitement all over the land. The South as the advocate of slave territory and the North as a defender of free soil and free labour, being bitterly arrayed against each other. Mr Sumner treated the subject with his accustomed power of argument and rhetoric and at great length, his speech occupying two days. A portion of it was directed with remarkable vigour and sarcasm, though entirely within parliamentary bounds, to the arguments of the Honourable A.P. Butler, Senator from South Carolina, delivered some days previously. 
On the 22nd, the Senate adjourned at an early hour in consequence of the announcement of the death of Honourable Mr Miller of Missouri. After the adjournment, as was the custom of some senators, Mr Sumner remained at his desk and was there writing unsuspecting and busily when he was approached by Preston S. Brooks and L. M. Keat, congressmen from South Carolina, each with a cane. Brooks was a nephew of Senator Butler. Brooks walked up in front of Mr. Sumner's seat and, saluting him, made the following remarks. Mr. Sumner, I have read your speech carefully and with as much calmness as I could be expected to read such a speech. You have libelled my state and slandered my relative who is aged and absent, and I feel it my duty to punish you for it. Without waiting for any reply or asking for any explanation, Brooks instantly struck Mr Sumner a violent blow upon the top of his bare head, while the latter was still in a sitting posture with a heavy gutter percher cane. Brooks followed this blow immediately with other blows, from 12 to 20 in all, dealing them with all the force which his Herculean size and great strength made him master of. Mr Sumner had no distinct consciousness after the first blow. He involuntarily strove to rise from his seat, but being confined by his writing position, he wrenched his desk from its fastenings in attempting to extricate himself. Stunned and blinded, however, from the first, his efforts at self-defence were ineffectual, and staggering under the fast-repeated blows, he fell senseless to the floor, gashed, bleeding, and powerless. The cane was used as a deadly weapon, being as hard as hickory or whalebone. It was one inch in diameter at the larger end, and tapered to the diameter of about five-eighths of an inch at the smaller end. And so violently did Brooks deal his blows upon the defenceless senator's head that the deadly weapon was shattered into many pieces by the time the assault terminated. So really shocking chaos here, real violence in the heart of American politics in the moments just before the Civil War. And it's also interesting there where Brooks feels duty bound by his southern codes of honour to avenge his uncle. Um, and um, and does so with, with, with violence in a way that we might find completely um, sort of alien. But actually, if you stop and you have a look at what happened in Congress last year and, and what's happening all over the world this year, then it's not actually that different anymore. And it made me think, actually, particularly about um, the, the, um, the description of what's going on. Um, you've got other Southerners there, and afterwards they, they treat Brooks as a hero, and he receives hundreds of new canes. They send him new canes because he's broken it, beating the life out of this guy. And one was even inscribed with the words, hit him again, hit him again. And it really reminded me of the, um, the chants at the, uh, the Trump rallies of lock her up, uh, when all the Trump supporters wanted to lock up Hillary Clinton. So well, here we have another one, hit him again. Um, thought it was extraordinary. Anyway, a bit of moment of chaos in the heart of American politics, James. Oh, Sam. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. It's fascinating. I, I, that's been in the news recently as well. It sort of resurrected its its ugly head as people try and get to get to the root of it. Uh, I also was thinking about chaos and and politics, and in particular, uh, what happens when you try and change structures within society, and then things go wrong, and it leads to chaos. And I've been doing quite a bit of work on modern day China and particularly Mao's China and the Cultural Revolution and I think what struck this wasn't a period that I knew much about it wasn't something I'd studied at university I knew about it um, you know to some extent but actually reading so much more about it I learned an incredible amount and I was fascinated in the, the revolution and then the attempt to transform Chinese society in, in so many ways. So many of the ideas actually borrowed from Russia and it's in different forms, but many of the ways. Um, and in particular, things like the, the Great Leap Forward. So this sort of attempt to transform agrarian society to a communist system, um, which was something of a failure. And then the the movement to the mountains so this sort of the policy to rusticate educated urban youth and send them into the countryside to live and learn from from peasants and i i found this fascinating um and i think one of the things that struck me is not only the the propaganda and upbringing which which really worked and were quite effective and you know many people were Many of the young children, the teenagers, not young children, but teenagers, Chinese teenagers, you know, really wanted to go into uh, the countryside um, because they'd been brought up, you know, on on this, you know, since from schooling age. I mean, there are examples of children writing letters in their own blood, um, begging to sort of go and, and get their sort of residency requirements so that they could go into the countryside. But once they got there what they face is something completely different. 
It's appalling conditions, hard work, poor housing, poor living environment. And these urban sort of bourgeoisie were treated with great suspicion um, by the peasantry that they encountered, who basically had to, you know, put up with them. They were often treated with harshness and violence. They also um, faced malnutrition and starvation and sickness and accidents. And for women, this could be even worse. And they'd face sexual assault, even rape, and sometimes be forced to marry uh, male peasants. This is one tale of a, of a, a young teenage girl who finds herself living with a peasant family and she has to share the bed with a peasant woman, the grandmother, and she wakes up in the middle of the night to find that it's not the grandmother in bed with her, but in fact the grandmother's disabled grandson and then is forced to marry him. Um, you know, And so I think one of the things that struck me here is actually that despite these sort of great plans, it's actually the chaos that one finds, the fact that they don't work, that it, you know, everything seems sort of slightly futile. And if you, one of the problems in accessing Chinese history, as you know, Sam, because you, you're such an expert on it, you've spent so much time there, you've filmed so much about it, but one of the difficulties is how you navigate the current prevailing politics of it and the the sense in which the state wants to put forward a particular historical point of view. But one of the things that I think we've seen in recent decades coming out is there are stories about the Cultural Revolution that are coming out. And one of the books that I've been reading is a book called Morning Sun, which is interviews with Chinese writers of the lost generation. And so these are these are writers, fictional writers who or writers of fiction who produce novels about often about their their experience about the jaiquing uh which is the sort of these these individuals this generation of lost the lost generation who went out to the countryside and they're talking about their their experiences that they had there and what we have then is first-hand testimony of quite how bad things were the chaos that they find themselves in and one of the most interesting that i came across uh was uh, an interview with a writer called Wang Zhaozhong, um, who's a survivor of the Great Leap Forward. He was born in 1947. Uh, he, he publishes a, a novella called The Burial Before Dawn in 1984. Um, he's somebody who experienced, you know, the the whole sort of Cultural Revolution period. Um, and he... It almost poisons himself at one point he you know from eating things that aren't good for him um you know he's you know he and what i'd like to do is just read a little bit from the interviews that he had um and he's asked to explain his experience of the great leap forward so this attempt to transform agriculture to make it conform to a sort of more communal communist way of 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 operation my experience he remembers of hunger after the great leap forward is unforgettable in 1958 i was in an elementary school suddenly one day i saw people waving red flags beating drums and gongs and burning firecrackers in the village saying that we were going to set up communes at that time the cooperatives had just been put into practice for one year 
people did not know what was going on. The teachers at school led us parading in the street, singing songs as we walked from village to village. Soon afterwards, communal dining halls were set up. We didn't have to cook at home. We kids were very excited. I said to my mother, the dining hall is very good. My mother said, who knows, it won't be good with so many people eating together. When the smelting steel campaign came, so this is a, an attempt to sort of basically you know, um, gather together all the, the, the scrap iron, um, he says, he says the situation became terrible. In the beginning, we smelted scrap iron and then made iron. Competitions were held. The place that attained the highest output won the most honour. Almost anything containing any metal was confiscated. Even the tiny metal plates on the bottom of the grain grinder were all taken away. Cooking utensils were confiscated. The place that collected the highest number of woks was awarded a red flag. The woks were smashed to make raw iron. And then this raw iron was used to make woks. What a waste. The whole operation was so ridiculous. We hid our woks to avoid confiscation. We threw our woks into ponds or rivers in the middle of the night. We could not retrieve them until after the smelting steel campaign. The CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, had a single purpose in mind. With no cooking utensils, people would have no means to cook and they would be forced to go along with the communal system. He then goes on to explain the famine. In our district, he explains, we had an excellent harvest in 1958, but it all rotted in the fields because every able man was mobilised to make steel. Only women and children and the elderly were left in the villages. And then he goes on, why didn't the peasants do something to save the grain? Didn't they foresee starvation? And this is really telling because I think what it shows is the incompatibility with peasant mentality and communist ideals. He, he re recalls, this involved the fundamental problem of human nature. If the grain belonged to one family, the family would work very hard. If the grain belonged to 1,000 people or to 10,000 people, no one was willing to work. Also, many people assumed that since the Communist Party was, ask, was asking us to eat in the communal dining halls, there must be a large food surplus nationwide. And he goes on to basically say that there wasn't. And he talks about, he then goes on to talk about starvation. Usually it started with the old people developing swollen bodies. Their eyes sometimes became so swollen that they could not see. And then he goes on to describe how he 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 eats things that that make roots and that make him make him sick and he almost poisons himself he remembers two kids trying to chase a goose and as they're trying to chase a goose they fall down a hole and they you know and they die one of the saddest stories is about the death of his father-in-law uh, he describes this he was a very strong person before liberation his job was to turn the grinder to squeeze oil from peanuts after he starved to death, his family had no money to buy a coffin. His oldest son went to ask for help, but was refused. Only after he kowtowed three times did the cadre lend him 50 yuan to buy a coffin. But the coffin was too short. Finally, they had to press his head down in order to fit him in. The whole family was grief-stricken, remembering before liberation how hard he worked for the landlords and thinking now... How unexpected it was that he should die so tragically. So I think it, again and again and again, you've got a chronicling 
of the disorder, the, the, the chaos that people find on the ground, you know, in, in the countryside during the Cultural Revolution. So there we are, Sam. That's a sort of a sort of chaos for you. No, really, really good. And, and there are moments when when uh, societies do break down and everything goes wrong. The French Revolution. You can look at the Russian Revolution. There are, you know, real moments of um, of, of chaos. Maybe with perhaps the right ideas behind them, but just not being implemented properly. Um, well, another moment I came across, of course, well, I hadn't really thought of, was the, the sack of, of Rome in 410 by King Alaric of the Visigoths. Um, that's an extraordinary period, and I would urge you all to look into that. But I just want to finish by uh, reading something by a, um, a Dutch writer from the 19th century, a guy called Gerard Nost Trinite. And um, he, he wrote under the pseudonym of, of Charivarius. Fascinating chap and uh, very, very, very bright, very clever, very shrewd. And he wrote a book, uh, wrote a poem called The Chaos. And uh, it, he, he studied the English language and he realised that it was the finest example of linguistic chaos out there. And um, it starts with a, with a really wonderful line. Dearest creature in creation. Now, I'm going to help you get through this, but the point about this, of course, is that creature is spelt C-R-E-A-T-U-R-E, and creation is spelt C-R-E-A-T. So the beginnings of the words are the same, but they're pronounced completely differently. And he goes on, and he uh, somehow, and I, I, I'm not, I don't know how he actually did this, but he has he's made a collection of words in English which are spelt the same, but pronounced differently. And um, I shall read you a bit of this. Dearest creature in creation, studying English pronunciation, I will teach you in my verse sounds like corpse, core, horse, and worse. Very clever there, because obviously horse and worse are spelt basically the same, but pronounced completely different. I will keep you, Susie, busy. Make your head with heat grow dizzy. Tear in eye your dress you'll tear. Social eye, oh hear my prayer. Pray console your loving poet, make my coat look new, dear, so it. Just compare heart, beard, and herd, obviously they're all spelt the same, dies and diet, lord and word, I really like that one, lord and word, L-O-R-D and W-O-R-D, pronounced so different. Sword and sward, retain and Britain, mind the latter how it's written, Made has not the sound of bade, say said, pay, paid, laid, but played. <laughs> now I surely will not plague you with such words as vague and ague. But be careful how you speak, say break, stake, but bleak and streak, even though they're all spelt the same. Previous, but precious, fuchsia, via, pipe, snipe, recipe, and choir. Cloven, oven, how and low, script, receipt, shoe, poem, toe, hear me say devoid of trickery, daughter, laughter and terpsichore. <laughs> Very good. Um, and I'd urge you all to just uh, get that and then uh, have a read of it as I'm reading it out and you'll realise just, just how clever this chap was and how much he relished in the chaos of the English language. Oh, excellent, Sam. We love a bit of love a bit of English 
jiggery pokery. Right, my final example is going to be about the chaos of social lives. Uh, and it really, I'm interested in the history of mischief and lawless hours. This is the world turned upside down. This is lords of misrule, inversion of social structures and conventions. It is bacchanalian feasts that one may think of as social chaos. And as always, when I'm thinking about this sort of thing, I turn to that brilliant book by the historian Steve Roud called The English Year, and it is full of all sorts of gems. Did you know the 31st of October is known as Mischief Night? And for many sort of young people, this is a time when they can play all sorts of tricks on people within the village, on the grown-ups. And it's described in 1882 uh, by two Lancashire folklorists, John Harland and T.T. Wilkinson. The evening before May Day is termed Mischief Night by the young people of Burnley and the surrounding district. All kinds of mischief are then perpetrated. Formerly, shopkeepers' signboards were exchanged. John Smith the grocer, finding his name and vocation changed by the sign over his door to Thomas Jones Taylor and vice versa. But the police have put an end to these practical jokes. So there were all kinds of merriment and games that people did. They swapped over not only signs, but gates. They switched around, you know, all sorts of things. Front doors were, were knocked. And we've talked about the, the, the history of knock-knock ginger knocking on the door and running away. And there's a lovely um, collection uh, by the, the local Women's Institute in a 1971 collection of Lancashire Law where it describes mis Mischief Night in Blacko in Lancashire, which was Halloween. On one occasion, the mischief makers went to Lower Admagill Farm, armed with a gun and a tin of blood collected from the slaughterhouse. When the farmer opened the door, a shot was fired into the air and simultaneously the blood was thrown over him. He staggered back, waving his arms and shouting, I've been shot! Needless to say, no one stayed to find out how long it took him to recover. Another trick, it continues, was sometimes played on patrons of the Moorcock Inn, who left their transport tied up outside. On leaving their inn, they would discover that their horse had been led into a nearby field, the gate closed, the cart's still on the roadside, but hitched to the horse through the closed gate. Oh, what, what jokers they are. I think one of the things is, if we think about how this would sit in present-day society, it's probably much more that, um, that real damage was caused, and, and actually these tricks are much closer to vandalism um, yeah. than, than, than we would find nowadays. Um, but actually, you know, in the in the 19th century, you've got people who would have simply just grown up within this tradition and would have, you know, would have turned a blind eye to children being involved in that way. And I think one of the things that is a constant thread throughout traditional customs is this notion of lawlessness. So this sort of like almost this permitted chaos and there's a tradition of lawless hours and lawless days. You know, particular times of the day or particular calendrical events when you were actually allowed to 
you know, turn things upside down and to have this sort of organised chaos. And I, I'm reading again from here from the Gentleman's Magazine of, of 1790. At Kidderminster is a singular custom. On the election of a bailiff, the inhabitants assemble in the principal streets to throw cabbage stalks at each other. The townhouse bell gives signal for this affray. This is called lawless hour. This done, for it lasts an hour, the bailiff elect and corporation in their robes, preceded by drums and fifes, for they have no weights, visit the old and new bailiff constables attended by the mob. In the meantime, the most respectable families in the neighbourhood are invited to meet and fling apples at them on their entrance. I have known forty pots of apples expended at one house. And there's another there's another example dating from uh, 1832, which is is in our hometown of Exeter, Sam, our home city of Exeter. And it's it's in William Hone's yearbook. And he remembers there in the town more than a dozen years earlier. He wrote of squads of the mischief loving part of the mobility taking to the streets on the 29th of May, damming up the water courses to make deep pools and expecting passers-by to give money or be drenched with the none-too-clean water. Excellent stuff. Loved it. Have you been watching uh, Clarkson's Farm? No. Oh, it's extraordinarily good. I, I thought I would hate it, but it is extraordinarily good. And there's one, and it's partly good, not simply for Jeremy Clarkson, who's a uh, sort of very much Marmite, love him or hate him, type of person but for the characters that he assembles round him and there's one young young guy Caleb uh who's a sort of um you know, in his early 20s and has been brought up you know living in the local village and he describes uh getting together with his friends for a potato fight and often after being at the pub they would go into a local field and hurl potatoes at each other. I'm not sure how I, what I understand of that, but it it just seems that it's it, it, that itself is a sort of game of chaos. Absolutely, you don't know what's going to happen next, guys. Thank you all so much for listening to our history of chaos. I hope you've enjoyed it. I really enjoyed researching it, and uh, I could certainly do some more on that. Um, do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis, and if you're interested in maritime and naval history, the whole world of ships and the sea, do please listen to me on the Mariners Mirror podcast. And if you're wanting to follow me, I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, and we have a brilliant webpage historiesoftheunexpected.com where you can see all the things that we've done in the past you can see you can still buy copies signed copies of our book and we also have a patreon page a patreon page patreon patreon page patreon page uh, should you so wish to support what we are doing to try and change the way in which people understand the past a noble endeavor indeed Sam Willis. It is. Any money that you can offer to us will simply allow us to make more episodes and we'd love to be able to do so. Thank you all very much indeed for listening. We'll be back again soon. Cheerio. Take care, guys. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.